I live in this constant state of paranoia that that I'm going to miss something or I'm not going to be able to do it. And so, you know, it's like a challenge for myself. If you ask me in every single experience what my next experience was going to be as I went from company to company, I wouldn't have guessed the one I, that I ended up doing. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. This is a tip jar. Okay. okay. Yep. And it's not a swear jar. So That's what I thought it was right when I walked not, in. I was like, this has to be a swear, it's jar, not a swear jar. And I don't have any cash on me. <laughs> it's not a swear jar. And I promise I have never actually made someone pay. This is my money that it's in here. Sure. But it is the jar that you're supposed to tip me when you tell a story. Okay. Okay. Whether you're Bill McDermott or GC or Leslie. Yeah, yeah. No matter how many times, few or many, you have done these types of things. Whenever someone tells a story, they bang on the table. Try not to bang on the table. Okay, okay. If you do, it's totally okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll remind you and you owe me imaginary money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I got it. I have a quick funny story for you. Yeah, tell me. At Zapier, we're completely remote. So every meeting's on Zoom. And people would tell me for months that they hear a, almost like a cowbell in the background. And I'm like, I don't understand. A cowbell? What cowbell are you hearing in the background? And what ended up happening was on a light in the room, there was like a little figurine that my son did at school. And it was hanging off this light fixture. So every time I moved, and I moved a lot, I would tap the table and it would subtly ring this little thing, but I couldn't hear it because I had my headset on. And so everybody was like, you have a cowbell in your room. It's somewhere. It took me three months to figure out that that's what it was. No way. I swear. I swear. No way. Yeah. See, yeah. those are the things when you're remote that are just weird yeah. and different, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. We should get into remote today because it's I'm, I'm the anti-remote person. Come on. And like, the company's fully remote. Fully remote. So that'll be a fun conversation. Have you, have you felt like... When people come back to like in-person things at a remote company, they like forget normal manners. You know, I thought that's how it was going to be. We recently had a company retreat and I was, I was at the one previous to this as well. And the short answer is no, it's almost opposite. You're almost appreciative of that experience and you try to get as much as you can out of it because you're not spoiled by where you can have, you know, hallway conversations, water cooler type conversations. And so it's really a unique experience where almost everybody wants to talk to you and everybody wants to have like a very fluid, valuable conversation. And that's just, you almost get jaded by being in the office at times. And that's what I've realized. And it's crazy. I'm the last person. I'm the last person that would say that. One of the reasons I was considering not accepting the role at Zapier was not because the company wasn't great and the culture wasn't great. I was not sure if I could survive in a remote only world. Why? It's not my personality. Like yeah. this is this is why the podcast is so interesting to me and the way you do it. I've actually only done two podcasts. Yeah. They've all been remote. Yeah. And it's the weirdest experience to, for me because I'm talking to somebody through a screen. So yeah. there's there's very little connection there. Do you find yourself getting distracted more easily when there's a screen between you? 
Yes. Yes. You might see it during this conversation, like a squirrel will walk by and I might get up and just walk and look out the window. Right. Like, so, um, so I would say for me, yes, but you find ways to stay in the moment, whether that's like pausing and taking breaks just so your mind could go somewhere else that isn't on a screen and in zoom. I've actually gotten two monitors. And so it sounds simple, but I only focus on one monitor during Zoom conversations and everything else is on another screen. So I, it's almost like I have to force myself to look somewhere else. That makes sense. And so it's distracting for the person on the screen too because they're like, wait, where are you looking? What were you worried about specifically about the remote thing at Zapier? Meaning what was the big primary concern? Because that's a pretty big deal to view that as a bug, not a feature of a company. And a remote company at that, like which is, that has which never been remote for, <laughs> for, for 10 years, 10 like years. It, it, it never had an office. And so I would say the way you articulate that is interesting. You're like, wait, was that a bug? And you, and you like still went with it. I would say for me, it was more of a curiosity. I had spent my whole career at Lassian, Dropbox, Confluent, each of those respective roles and organizations I was at, it was almost faux pas to be remote in the times I was there. Like now they've changed. I think Atlassian's pretty much fully remote at this point. Dropbox is as well. Confluent is probably half, half. And I just didn't know what the experience would be like. So it wasn't a bug to me. It was more like a feature request, I guess is the way to put it. It was like, do I really want to accept this feature request? And I was scared. Like I was just, you know, how do you function in a world like that where a lot of my brand, a lot of who I am comes from this, yeah. comes from this type of interaction, sitting across the table for somebody, walking over to somebody's desk and having a conversation with them about a problem, a challenge, praising them. This is just a new way to work for me. The reason it's neat though, as you figure it out, you kind of realize you can do those same things. You just have to navigate them differently. Yeah. Why do you think you can't uphold that brand sustainably remote. What about the brand? So as an example, Aaron Levy Mm -hmm. at Box is notorious for walking around to people's desks or was and asking them, what's up? What's going on? Is that kind of what you mean by the brand? A little bit. Yes. I would actually say that's what I'm notorious for. If you ask people from Dropbox about their experience with me there, I guarantee one of the one of the at least three to five things they'd say was GC would walk around and talk to everybody. And that was part of my brand. I'd high five people. I'd ask how project's going, you know, the list goes on. And I would say that is hard to do. You have to find a different way to do it. You cannot walk to somebody's desk, but I found that mode. I'm at least in the top three every month of the most Slack messages being sent at the company. And I was trying to think to myself, is that a good or a bad thing? And I was trying to think like, do I really send that many Slack messages? And really what it comes down to is I'm trying to have those conversations on Slack. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. I've just figured out another way to do it. And now I take pride in that. And I've, I feel like I'm the champion now, right? Like, the, so every, every week I'm looking at who, who else is beating me in the Slack challenge. Do you not just pick up the phone? Is it not that type of culture? I would say we do. I mean, I would say pick up a Zoom at this point. Like, yeah. I mean, but I will... throughout the day, if I want to talk to somebody and I just feel like Slack isn't the right medium, I'll have a Zoom conversation with them immediately. So it was in office, in office. You mentioned Confluent was hybrid and then this is fully remote. Not to lead the witness, 
But do you think the worst of those options is hybrid? Meaning part of the knock that hybrid gets and part of the flag that remote companies run around with and bear is this idea that there is no hierarchy that's developed between who's in the office and who's not. Even here, if certain people are in the office and certain people are not, that's going to be a problem for the people that are not. Big time. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a unique challenge. You're not leading the witness. I would say you have to pick a side. I just think that's how it is. You have to pick a side because then you almost create, you're trying to create two cultures, which I think is very difficult to do. It's hard enough figuring out how to do it all remote or all not and trying to do this hybrid world. I know folks are trying to do it in their own special ways and everybody's putting their own spin or flavor on it, but I think it's hard to do. I just think it's very difficult to do. I think you do have to pick a side for a lot of the reasons that you suggest, but I just think culturally is the biggest reason. Yeah. You mentioned, hey, if I was walking around the Dropbox office and I asked three to five things that were very GC, would another one be, I'm really curious, being early? Can I tell you why I asked that? Sure. I will say it is refreshing and not frequent that someone shows up 20 minutes before. I was happy. By the way, I feel like it's almost like a dying art to show up very early. I don't know. Maybe that was just coincidence. Maybe you got a coffee faster than you expected and showed up earlier than you expected, but I'm just curious. Yeah. The answer I'd give to you there is I'm most likely the first one in and I'm most likely the last one out. It's just always how I've been. Hmm. I've never been any different. Even when I was in, honestly, when I was in grade school, I was always the same way. Like I, I wanted to be like the first one there. Maybe it's a competitive side to me in a weird way, but I'm always the first one in and I'm always the last one out. First one in though is important. I was watching the Steve Harvey episode randomly. And part of that episode was like how people that are late are more successful. But it was a joke. I was like, oh, that's weird. That's a weird thing to say. And he read some studies. And part of it was like a little bit about respect and not giving a shit. I'll say shit here. I won't say it on the podcast. You, you can know? say shit. Yeah, you can say shit. Dude, we're I, rolling, I, I by the way. We're just- Oh, we're okay, just cool. Talk, yeah, we're yeah. rolling. I don't, I don't know if it needs to be that extreme. I don't think people are being disrespectful when they're late. Yeah. But it always sticks with me. Yeah. Like, it just sticks with me. Can I comment on the late thing? Sure. I actually don't think it's a disrespect thing. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a selfish thing. Yeah. And I think it's a selfish thing. And I've had to give this feedback to people more senior than me. Mm-hmm. And it's really awkward when someone is habitually late mm-hmm. and I have to tell them, hey, the reason that it bothers you, that it bothers me that you're late is because the signal that I receive is that your time is more important than mine. And if the answer is yes, then let's just acknowledge let's that. Just call it. And by the way, in some cases, their time is more important than mine. And I'm okay with that answer. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in most cases, that person does not want to be sending that signal. Yeah. You know? And that's the late thing. Yeah, no, that's a, it's it's well articulated. But I would consider that respect thing as something, it's meaningful, right? Like it's just meaningful to people. By the way, even when you're late and you explain yourself, that is meaningful to me. Like if you say I'm late because of these reasons, even if they're not necessarily the the reasons that I choose or I think is the right reasons is still. I agree with that. Uh, I have another question for you on the brand thing. Yep. So it seems like 
one of your brands is to be a hard worker. And that's a point of pride for you. Like, sure. I'm not saying brand as in that's something that you set as a goal, yeah. then you work towards achieving. I think it's very natural for you. Therefore, you've earned that as part of your thing. Yeah. The Slack commentary. I wonder if what you're doing is upholding the brand of output through Slack. You know, it could be. I don't want to hold that badge of honor. I don't know if I'm thinking that way, but let me. I don't think it's intentional. Yeah. yeah. I'll take a step back though and say like, if for me, hard work is a brand thing for me. It's important to show folks that this is what it takes. It is hard work. A lot of what you talked about in previous podcasts that I've listened to, and you hear a lot of the folks that you've talked to or talk about how it's hard. This is hard. It's meant to be hard. You're kind of working against the grain here. You talk about grit, kind of like the definitions of grit, like that's passion, that's perseverance, that's like fighting through those type of things. You have to work hard to get there. It doesn't come free. A lot of that comes from even like family background stuff in that. So, Does it rub you the wrong way? When people don't work hard, don't you think it's the easiest part of your brand to build? It requires no skill. It's just effort. It's literally just effort. Does that ever cross your mind? Okay. Early days. This is funny to me to say on the podcast. Early days, a hundred percent. Like I'd look at, I'd look around the room and I'd actually try to identify Who's in that category of, I guess, working hard? And there's different ways you could categorize people. It mm-hmm. doesn't need to be how long you work, but it's really like the effort you're putting mm-hmm. into that project or that thing that you're doing. I did do that early. As I've started to grow, I would say in different ways, I've recognized that sometimes that's hard for me to recognize. Like people are working hard, but they may not do it in the same way that I do it. Mm. I've had to recognize that pattern because I've have been wrong where I might label person as quote unquote, not hardworking, but that may not be true. They just may not be doing it in the same way that I do it. In different hours, hours, in different different ways. ways. Yeah. In totally different ways. Like some people don't talk about their work at all, but they're getting stuff done. And sometimes it's hard to just recognize. And so you, part of my job, I would say over the years has become helping people not in an irresponsible way, but really show that work that they're doing and show the organization, myself, a way to like represent that work. It doesn't mean it needs to equate to hard work, but I think it does in people's minds. I'm curious, when you're interviewing people, do you test for hard work? No. I mean, I think that's incredibly difficult to get. I think you can understand a lot about a person from things like references, talking to folks that are colleagues, as part of this conversation, you may or may not have talked to a number of different people and you could pick up that hardworking piece. Yeah. It's been there forever? Forever. 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 Since you were a kid. I'll give you a, an example from when I was a kid. I played basketball when I was young. And when I was probably in like, I don't know when it was, seventh grade, the only way you can make the, I would say like what they called the A team was if you can basically make a layup left-handed and you had to be able to do it consecutive times. I couldn't do that in seventh grade. I didn't, I I didn't know how to use my left hand very well. I went home. I had a basketball hoop in my backyard. You could lower, it was an adjustable hoop and you can lower it to, you know, whatever it may be, six feet, seven feet high. And I sat there every single night for hours trying to figure out how to use my left hand. I became so proficient with my left hand 
I started to be able to shoot with my left hand, but it was only because I was doing it every single day. Like it was a habit. I had to get my left hand to be like almost as good as my right hand at that point. Mm. And that was like, that's always been ingrained in me. Why? Why was it so important to you to be able to make that team? Whenever you do something, or at least whenever I do something, I want to give it like my all out effort, but I also want to, I want to be good if not great at it. And it takes work to go from good to great. And I would just say that's always been part of my, like how I've disciplined myself. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's, is it nature versus nurture? I'm not sure. I think some of it is in people's nature. I bet you could come up with a bunch of stories like that growing up. I wonder when you were sitting down at the dinner table, was it achievement oriented, the conversations that were at the dinner table? I thought about this question. I heard you ask it at other podcasts and I would say the short answer is no. My parents were very empathetic. They really weren't hard on us in terms of like school and education. I mean, they wanted us to do well, but they never pushed that in a way that was, at least for us, was unhealthy in any way or never felt like pressure. The same thing went for sports. The same thing went for even what we were going to do like later on in life. There was no like, you have to do this. You have to be the best. But I would say if you look at the actions that they took, when I think about my parents and the conversations we have, sometimes conversations happen through actions. Both my parents own their own businesses. And my dad in particular would wake up, he owned a produce warehouse and he would wake up at, I don't know, 1 a.m. and work till 1 p.m. the next day, going to the market, being the first in the market, which he was almost every single time before anybody there. And coming home just exhausted. And I never understood it. I still, to this day, don't understand like how he actually worked that hard and why he did. Cause he didn't have to work that many hours. He probably could have gotten away with working 25% less, maybe even 50% less. The truth is he owned the business. He could have even had other people do it. He never did that. And it wasn't for selfish reasons. I think it was strictly the fact that he wanted to be the best. He wanted to be, to be the best person at what he was doing. And you you emulate that in different ways, even if you do it subconsciously, I think. So you were at Atlassian, Dropbox, Confluent. What would he think of the places that you work now? Like how cushy they are, like the offices that you go to. You don't go to offices now, but like what would he have thought of these places? I tell both my mom and dad about them. They blow their mind, right? I'll give you a quick funny story here. When I was at Dropbox, my dad came to visit me there. And at that time at Dropbox, we had this incredible cafeteria there. And so there was, it was restaurant level food. And you got to choose from five different types of meals from different cuisines every single day. My dad comes there, he's standing in this place and he's like, is this part of your, like, this is where you work? And I'm like, Yeah. So I think he was like scratching his head going, this can't be real. He was quiet during our whole lunch. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, this just doesn't make sense. And then what I did was we got up and we walked down two flights of stairs and we went to get a cappuccino at our coffee bar there. And I think he was just like, this just really, he's like, you don't pay for this. This is part of work. Yeah. And I know that's a very spoiled example to be fair, but that's the world he saw which I think is amazing to him, let alone all the cool tech that we have, right? Like whether it's the laptops we use, the video equipment, Mm -hmm. all this setup at home today. Even when he looks at my setup at home, he's like, this is incredible. This is what you do to work and you work from home. Like to him, it's, by the way, the remote work. It must be nuts. It makes no sense to him. He's like, wait, you don't go somewhere. Where do you meet people? 
How do you talk all the time? It doesn't translate to him yeah. at all. What was your first job? <sighs> it connects to this story. My first job was my dad owned this produce warehouse. And in the summers, he would make me get up at roughly 1230 a.m. And I was what, maybe 14 years old then. And he would take me into work with him. And I'd work there as what you would call a porter. So I'd bring boxes of vegetables and fruits to like people's trucks basically and load them for them. And that experience has shaped me though. That experience right there has shaped me because truth is I didn't want to do that when I got older. That wasn't who I was, but it was such hard work. And you saw the people there. They were these incredible people. They're working so hard. And I say today, even as hard as I may think I work, they worked a hundred X harder than me. You know, there was all these coworkers of my dad's there and they used to know I was exhausted when I came in. Like I was 14 going somewhere at one in the morning, working till the next day at 10 AM. My mom would actually come pick me up earlier. Um, going to school and you go to school. No, that was, these were, this was during summer. This was during summer. But here's the deal. The other coworkers used to know I was tired and they used to, there was these huge refrigeration systems. So they were like, imagine like two stories high and you'd like store bananas in there as an example. They would put me on top of the pallet of bananas, pick me up with a forklift, put me in the refrigerator because they actually weren't that cold and I'd sleep for an hour or two and then no. they'd let me down so my dad wouldn't find me. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so. What a story. Yeah, yeah. I want to do something a little bit different. I had a woman named Claire Hughes Johnson on the show mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And Claire is the COO of Stripe. If you know who Claire yeah, is. Yeah, I do. She's incredible. Yeah. And I'm not ruining the book for the audience because, and she swore me to secrecy. The book will be out by the time this episode releases, which right. is in like the next two weeks. Okay. And one of the framings that she has in this book is about managing high performers. Yep. Okay. And I couldn't help but as I studied you, think about the framing that she uses to bifurcate high performers into pushers and pullers. Okay. And what she says, and I just want your re reaction to this. Right. And where do you think you fit into this framework? Okay. Because I have an idea. High performers tend to fall into two groups, which I call pushers and pullers. Some will fall into both categories at different times. Pushers are highly ambitious and they're often critical. They're quick to recognize when something is broken in an organization and set high standards for themselves and those they work with. Pushers reliably use performance reviews as an opportunity to ask why aren't they getting a larger raise or being entrusted with more responsibility. They're internally motivated and don't care too much about ruffling feathers. And yes, they will push you as their manager. Pullers are the types of high performers who will take on much more work than they should. Leaders and managers love them for projects because they know that pullers will almost always agree to work on something and deliver high quality output. But pullers get burned out. They suffer silently and won't tell you they're unhappy until the one-on-one -on -one where they tell you they're quitting. They derive a lot of their self-worth from external validation and usually want to be liked. They have trouble saying no. It goes on <laughs> and on. Of those two, does one fit more ne neatly into the GC brand than the other? Yeah, let's let's play a game though. Okay. Okay. Right hand. Yeah. Is push. Okay. Yeah. Left hand is pull. Uh -huh. Okay. I'm gonna put my hands underneath the table. <laughs> I'm gonna and you're gonna guess which one it is, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna put up the hand. Okay. All right. I will start and don't ruin the surprise yet. I'm gonna say left hand. I think you're a puller, and I think my idea behind this was. This guy has pusher written all over him. This guy is high energy, high output, will push people, push people, push people, make things happen. My instinct is that you are the guy that will 
wake up at 1230 in the morning, go sleep in the fridge of the crate and just wear it. So I pick polar, but I could be wrong. Polar. Polar. But I've learned how to push if that makes sense. And so, you know, if I looked back and kind of studied the career that I've had, I would say for a lot of my career, I was a puller. And some of the, probably some of the hardest feedback that I've gotten was don't be a puller. Don't necessarily be that person. Why? Because of things like burnout, because of things like almost resenting the thing that you do because you you have to get it done. There's no other way. And you have to get it done with a certain level of quality. And something you mentioned there that Claire, I guess, mentioned in this is is just around saying no or not being able to say no. Over the years, I've gotten a lot better at that. Like I've started to recognize when I'm pulling too much. It's still part of who I am and I've accepted that. Like I think that's okay, but I've figured out how to go to the pull side when I need to. And so it's, you do have to balance both, I think, to be what I would say is like a a well-balanced leader. You have to be able to do both. I think if you do one really, really well, and I'm not sure how Claire's book like plays this out. I think if you do one really, really well, you're missing something on the other side. Well, the way that she frames it, that there's pros and cons to both, Mm -hmm. right? There's things that you have to look out for with both people. I was curious because my initial impression was pusher. Mm -hmm. But as I really thought about it, I was like, I think the guy's a puller through and through. (laughs) When you talk about the feedback that someone gave you, how early was that in your career that someone signaled that to you for the first time? Because again, correct me if I'm wrong, that was probably a source of pride for you to be able to say yes to everything, to be able to take on a workload, to be able to have others count on you. Yeah, yeah. I could actually tell you the exact moment because it shaped a lot of my thinking throughout my career. That exact moment came Scott Farquhar, who's the CEO of Atlassian. I'll never forget. That was the conversation we had where he was giving me feedback on saying yes to everything, but not understanding what I was saying no to. And in that conversation, what he was trying to get to was, what are you really prioritizing? Really, what are the top one or two things that you have to get done? And the 50 other things, maybe you do need to say no to them because that's why you're working so like long hours. That's why as an organization at times I couldn't step away because you know, whether you go on vacation or whatever that means, like stepping away for some time, because ultimately like I was pulling, I was the person pulling. And that was a sense of pride for me. I'll never forget when I left that meeting, you know, he probably doesn't know this, but I was like, he's just wrong. He doesn't know me. He doesn't value what I bring, but the truth is he was on target. That's an area that I needed to improve. And I've always internalized that feedback. Even today when it happens, I internalize that feedback. Wade Foster, who's the CEO of Zapier, he has a really good compass for recognizing where we're falling off course, right? Like when we're not prioritizing and we're not focusing. And it's been really, it's been a really good experience for me in like a yin and yang relationship because he'll come back to the things that he thinks I should be focusing on. And that's the conversation we'll have. And that allows me to at least tell myself, yep, this is the most important thing. You have to say no to these other things. And that makes me more effective. Do you have any signals when you're pulling too hard? Do you have any tells internally when you've taken on too much? And that's very obvious. I would say for me, it's not the work hours are longer. It's that the work hours feel longer when you feel like you're just dragging out to get things done. So it's not the number of hours you work, but it's like those hours feel like long hours. They feel like hard hours. And I could tell. And 
that's an internal signal for me that something's off. I can, even if I can't figure it out exactly what it is, that's when I'll go back and recheck my priorities, recheck the things that I'm doing and try to figure out like, where am I spending the wrong time? Where am I spending the right time? And, and try to like recheck rebalance. When you were at Atlassian, it was pretty early in your career, mm-hmm. right? Like it was a couple of years out of school. Yeah, it was. It was 07. And Atlassian was not that big of a company. It was not. I was the 33rd employee in our U.S. office, which was in the Bay Area in San Francisco. We had about probably 100 people in our Sydney, Australia office. And there was they were predominantly developers, like engineers and product were the folks in some finance in our Australian office. So it was it was really early days. And it's still hold like stock price is still holding pretty strong. Like it's an incredible company. It is an incredible company. The way that I think about this company is it's one of the few that has and is continuously achieving its potential. Mm-hmm. It is pushing in ways that are mind blowing to me to this day. Yep. Do you agree with that? 190%. It's kind of fascinating to think about because who would have thought? I was at Atlassian seven years. I was there sub 40 million. I remember when we celebrated hitting 100 million as a company. And now to see that they've been able to, I would say, maintain that level of, I call it excellence. Like I, I try to think of the right word. But when I look back, when I look at what they're doing today, so much of it started, I would say, in the times that I was there multi-product discipline, being very disciplined about efficiency in the business, the product-led growth or self-serve model that they've really mastered and are known for, really being thoughtful about their strategic choices, where they're going to play, where they're not going to play. That all happened when we were $40 million. How much revenue are they doing today-ish? Over a billion, right? Yeah, well over a billion. I think they're on their way to two. I'm curious, you probably celebrated a year or two into your stint at Atlassian, the $100 million milestone. Sure, yep. At the time, what did you think? Did you think, oh, this is going to be a billions of revenue dollar company? No. It wasn't the same time that we live in today where people are doing, ultimately, when people are taking jobs today, they're doing spreadsheet math. They're like, okay, if I get a thousand shares, if this company's worth X billion in however many years, you know, some people maybe aren't realistic, but in X number of years, like I can make X amount. I'm going to share a fun fact with you that I think is going to blow your mind. When I started at Atlassian, I won't state my salary, but we got a salary and a bonus. There was no stock options. There was no concept of stock options when I joined. So I didn't get a share of Atlassian until my, I think it was my second year there, or maybe even past that, like maybe closer to my third year there. They just didn't have the concept of stock options. And so we didn't even think about that. And when I got the stock options, I think my spreadsheet went up to, I still have the spreadsheet, 1.7 billion valuation. I was like, oh, if, they, if they're a $1.7 billion company. Yeah, like we're eating good. good. We're this eating good, good, honey. We're Everything did nice, well. Everything did nice okay, dinner. right? But I'll also tell you how much I believed in the company and still believe in it today. And this is not a, this is not even being an Atlassian fan person necessarily. It's not from that perspective or because I work there. I didn't sell a share of Atlassian for six years just because I thought the durability of that company is incredible. It's part of the reason, you know, quite frankly, even for Zapier, again, this is not pitching Zapier, but I saw, I see the, 
some of the same characteristics and the same durability of a company in, in Zapier. And so I look at both of them and I'm like, okay, it has some of those characteristics. Before I get too far into the episode, can you give the 30 seconds on what does Zapier do or feel free to couch it in? How would a customer use Zapier? So Zapier is, we are a leading easy automation platform. And the simplest way to think about it is we allow you to automate workflows and move data across 5,000 different applications. And so to put this in context for you, I'll actually give you an example of what I was doing last night. So I'll share a personal side to this as well. So recently we've found out that my son has dyslexia. And so I've been learning as much as I can on how we can better work with him and learn with him and how his mind works. And something that recently came out, and you probably have talked about this in spades here at Kleiner, but it's just like the whole AI thing Mm -hmm. and open AI, GPT-3, all that fun stuff. So here's what I did last night. Apparently there's a video on this. I should have just looked it up first and I can share the video with you. But (laughs) ultimately I connected three applications, Zapier, ChatGPT or OpenAI. It's that we have an open AI integration and email. So Gmail. And here's what those three things do together. My son could type an email and ultimately, you know, with dyslexia, there's ways your mind works that may not type an email in a way that's, that has the right grammar. You might write words in an incorrect sure. way. My son's eight years old. So some of that will happen because he's a kid. Yeah. What this does is it will em- immediately trigger an interaction with open AI And it will send back a message written in a more formal way. That's what it does. Where did I learn this? And why did I come up with this? It's not because I work at Zapier. A customer of ours did that. A customer story that recently came out. I put it in my phone because I don't want to mess up their name. It's Danny Richman. He's a consultant, is a Zapier, I would say, partner. And he was up on stage at our company retreat. And you can read about his story online. And I think it's incredible. He basically used those three tools that I just mentioned, Zapier, OpenAI, Gmail. And he created an experience for one of his friends who's actually dyslexic, who is a contractor who's trying to work with different companies. And what an incredible way to use the technology that we created. It was an emotionally connecting story to me. Sure, I love that people use Zapier for mission-critical applications and, you know, we have customers like the Zendesks of the world, the Halo cars of the world. Those are incredible stories and I love that they're using it in that way and that's important for our business. But isn't it cool that there's a company that's using it that is ultimately helping people in a way that's, you know, to me, that's meaningful. That's That's incredible. In the Atlassian days, just to go back for a second, was it weird When this type of go-to-market motion, this type of company, everything was atypical about this company. Mm -hmm. Everything. Yep. Product-led growth was not a term back then. Maybe it was. I don't think so. Wasn't it weird getting advice from everyone and that advice just didn't match the world that you were operating within? Was that a weird feeling? It was. Because you're breaking ground. 100%. 100%. I would say that it wasn't weird. It was just hard to take advice because nobody understood this world. If you think about the world Atlassian lived in at that time, there was no phrase coined for product-led growth. Sure. 
we called it bottoms up and we were just like, look, we're just trying to get customers in the funnel, use product and marketing to drive them through that, through the funnel. And we wanted them to pay with a credit card because it was just easier. And taking advice from people during that time was just a lot of the advice was, why don't you hire salespeople? That's the best thing to do. Like your model's not going to scale. You're not going, your model's not going to work. 15 years later, every company is trying to do this, right? Like they're trying to create this product-led growth and human touch motion. So we're trying to do a Zapier. That's why they hired me is to think through how to marry those two motions. But Atlassian at that time was, they were one of one. You had seven years there? Seven years. Seven years. Let's just say that this is one of the best rides that anybody could have. I mean- Maybe there's better. There's the Googles of the world. But like as far as enterprise B2B software goes, you know, these are the types of companies that we want to invest in. Sure. When you were experiencing the ride, knowing now what you know about how special that company is and was, did it feel like the best ride of your life? Did it feel like, wow. I'm at the best company right now and everything is just going our way and the ball's bouncing our direction and we just can't miss. Is that how it felt? Not at all. But isn't it weird <laughs> that people tell the story that way? Like, isn't it weird 100%. that like, like, why are we 100%. saying that? Yeah, but it is a story, right? People are going to tell the best story they can. And I didn't think that, I mean, you have to qualify this to say that was early in my career. Yeah. So you didn't have good pattern recognition. I didn't know yeah. what good or not yeah. good was, but I would say that for me, now that I look back on it, and this is hindsight, it was like a mini MBA for me. I got to see an innovative business model. I got to see the way a business can run that was arguably, and maybe even still today is arguably one of the most efficient, successful businesses in the world. I got to have experiences there with incredible, incredible leaders. So there was Mike and Scott who were the founders. There was Jay Simons who was the president who is still a very close friend today. He's actually on Zapier's board. And I just got to see a lot of different things firsthand. So you got to touch and feel them. So I could take that experience that I had at Atlassian and even translate some of it today at Zapier. And that was... 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. so, so crazy. Yeah, it's wild. When you went to Dropbox after Atlassian, you started as the senior director of growth and monetization. Then four years later, you get a promotion to be the VP of self-serve. Mm -hmm. Maybe the question that I have is, Dropbox was obviously a good ride. Did you ever consider just staying in Atlassian? Why didn't you stay? It's a good question. I get asked that all the time, by Do the you? way. They're like, and my initial reaction is like, well, I was there for seven years, yeah. you know? So, yeah. so there was like new experiences that I wanted to have. And that's the answer though. Yeah. That is the answer. I don't know if I'd be in the position I'm in today if I didn't get new experiences. And this is not encouraging folks to jump jobs, but it was that 
at Atlassian, there was seven years of an incredible, it was 20 years of experience. Like that's the truth in those seven years, I got to see everything. And I wanted to take that experience and like focus it in an area which happened to be like self-serve, right? In this product-led growth motion. I wanted to own a larger revenue number, which I didn't know if I could do when I went to Dropbox to be fair, but it ended up happening and ended up coming to fruition, especially with like the trust of folks like Dennis Woodside, who was actually on your podcast not too long ago. These folks entrusted me and I was able to capture that experience and then take that into Confluent and now Zapier. And so I don't regret it at all, but ultimately that experience led to all of this. I do owe my a large part of my success to what I learned at Atlassian and it happened to be an incredible company. Yeah. The outcome was incredible. And I'm connected to that outcome in inextricable ways. Did you have the same chip on your shoulder as you kept making these jumps? Has it always been that way? Always. This wasn't some existential, I need to make a career for myself at Atlassian. Every single jump, you are equally as nervous and excited and ready to get after it. Even more so today than I was before, I would say. I live in a constant state of, I don't know if this is the right word to use, but I think it is like, I live in a constant state of like paranoia, which I guess is healthy and unhealthy, right? Yeah. But like, I live in this constant state of paranoia that, that I'm going to miss something or I'm not going to be able to do it. You know, it's like a challenge for myself. If you ask me in every single experience, what my next experience was going to be as I went from company to company, I wouldn't have guessed the one I, that I ended up doing. If you asked me my first date at Lassian, what was going to be my next job? It was going to be VP of growth running self-serve at Dropbox. That wouldn't even been in the cards. There was really no other company that I knew that did self-serve, let alone Dropbox. And right. it was at a time where Dropbox was transitioning from a consumer business to more B2B. If you asked, told me that, I would have said no. If you told me at Dropbox, even when I was the VP of self-serve, that I was going to be the chief marketing officer of a company, of a developer tools company, essentially, which is Confluent, I would have said, there's no way. Like your, your crystal ball is completely wrong. And then if you told me I was going to be chief revenue officer at Zapier while I was a CMO at Confluent, I sort of could have believed it, but not fully. It took me a little while to believe that, but here I am, right? Like, so I wouldn't have believed in each of those scenarios. The paranoia thing, this is a concept that I'm fascinated with because it strikes me that most people that sit across the table from me have this thing. And I wonder, do you think you could achieve the way that you have without that paranoia? Maybe I'll ask a different way. Do you want your kids to have that paranoia? I debate this with my wife. Short answer is, I don't think so. I don't think I would have been able to achieve the things I've achieved without, it almost leaves you wanting more. And do I want my kids to have it? What's the debate? Your wife says, no, you say yes. My wife knows the way I work and kind of like she knows the paranoid GC. And there's a level of stress that does come with that. And the question is, do you want your, you always want to look at your kids and you want them to be, have no stress. I do like a little bit of urgency, a little bit of pace, a little bit of paranoia. That means you're hungry. That means you want it. That means you're not satisfied. And if that's what it means, I definitely want it for my kids. I want them to have that. I could actually see that trait in them. I heard you talking about in a previous podcast, is it, you talk about the concept of like nature versus nurture. I'm not sure, but I do think it's a learned behavior. If they see me do it, they're going to learn some of that behavior. It's not going to feel foreign to them. Yeah. And I'll connect this back to the initial conversation of remote work, because this is why I'm starting to like love remote work in my own crazy way, is that I found it to be 
incredibly satisfying that my kids could listen to some of the conversations that I'm having and feel some of that sense of urgency, feel some of that paranoia a little bit, but they're sitting on the floor playing with Legos. People don't know that in the room, but they get to experience it with me. And sure, maybe they don't know everything that I'm talking about, but they're going to remember this in 20 years when they're in the working world and they're trying to figure out how to be successful, win a project, win a deal, whatever that may be. That's a cool experience for me. And what's the counter argument that your wife makes? She's not trying to make a counter argument. Maybe one is like, she said, you can't turn it off. It's exactly what it is. That's what I was going to say. It's a balance thing where that's always been a struggle for me is how to balance that level of paranoia, especially that work-life balance. And that's always been a struggle with for me. And she's quick to recognize that, but she's also, she's helped mold the ways that I, that I can balance both. And she's become a compass for me. I wouldn't say that she's saying she doesn't want them to be paranoid. My wife's a very competitive person. You should watch us play board games. But I think she wants there to be some level of balance. And balance and happiness is the two things we all strive for. That's what I think. Balance and happiness. And both of those are hard to get. Let me ask you this. Do you think that balance is required to have happiness? Hmm, Good question. I don't have a perfect answer because to that. Because you don't have balance. I don't. Let's be I don't. honest. No, you we have don't. zero balance. We you, don't. Like, yeah, everyone we told don't. me like he takes zero days off between every single job that he's ever <laughs> exactly. done. And then eventually you have to take a year off because you literally couldn't handle it. Like yeah. you're just too much. Yeah. So that's I not w- balance. I would say that's, <laughs> that's not balance, but. But you also strike me as kind of happy. I'm incredibly happy. That's like, what I mean. I, I don't say this because we're on a podcast. I love my life. Like yeah. I love the pace. When people ask me about work. I love to work. I genuinely do. It's not a chore for me. When it becomes a chore, then I'll just stop doing it. It's as simple as that. And it's not a chore for me. The one thing I'd get across though is the balance part is always been something that's hard for me. But as I've gone through each stint in my career, especially even taking that year off, I wouldn't say that I was running away from figuring out balance. I was actually running towards it because I had recognized that, look, I needed to find that right balance. And I wasn't giving myself the space to do that. And I could tell you that that first three months of being off. This was after a confluence. This was after a confluence of being off for uh, almost a year before joining Zapier was the hardest three months of my life. I'd never not worked. And I was doing some stuff like advising and different things, but like it wasn't giving me that satisfaction that work gave me. So I quickly realized also that part of my happiness is having that challenge of work, but you do need to balance that. And I learned a lot of that during that year off is just figuring out how to like figuring out that dance. Am I good at it today? I'm better. I need my wife to be my compass, to be fair. She'll help me understand like when I'm off kilter or not. Yeah, it's actually very relatable. Even last week I was in a yoga class, like a very hot yoga class. And at the end of yoga, we did such a hard workout. And at the end of it, you just lay there. And I almost lost my fucking mind laying there. And it was an extended, I can't even remember what it's called, but like there's a yoga term for when you just lay there. Yeah. And the audience is going to yell at me for not remembering it, but nonetheless. Sure. And it was an extended version of this. Like it was like a five minute lay. Yeah. And I was like losing my mind. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I could not just lay there. And metaphorically, it feels similar. Like you were kind of just laying there. Yeah. There was no hill to charge. Totally. Totally. And I can imagine that being very difficult. It was. It was. 
But once I figured it out, like once I figured it out that there's other hills I could charge. Meaning the nine months after the first three. Correct. In the time off. Yep. What hills did you start charging? Uh, I'm going to have some good ones for you. I got a dog. His name's Marley. He's a golden doodle. I spent a ton of energy training this dog. I know this sounds odd. It was equally as satisfying. It gave you the same thing? Totally. You're kidding. Oh, and then I found an interesting joy. Not that it never wasn't joyful, but my son started to play soccer a lot more. I love soccer. My son's in a very competitive league and watching him play and go to practices was really satisfying for me. Like being there for him, like cheering, just being a part of that was incredibly satisfying for me. Does that give you pause? Meaning if you're talking about this GC would be very surprised by the next move. Mm -hmm. What if you just never worked again and you still had that same, I mean, you've had a great career. I just wonder like, what if there was... This idea that you can just charge at other hills that give you the same sense of satisfaction, I guarantee you before that year, you'd have said no way could I ever achieve this feeling Yeah, without building a career. I would say that today. Yeah. Does that give you pause? Does that give you a moment of like, oh, I could just be like super dad to the kids and the dog and that would give me everything I need? It doesn't give me pause. It's just a different life. It's just different than the pace and the things. But it doesn't give me pause. Like I've. You were sure you were going back to work. Yes. hundred percent. I told people maybe there was an option that I do something that was not an operational gig potentially, but I was going back to work. I knew I was going back to work. The truth is nobody thought I'd last a year, but I did make sure that I found the I don't want to call it perfect, but the best opportunity for me. And that was, that ended up being this gig at Zapier. Yeah. Do you think marketing works for sales? No, categorically, no. I think if marketing works for sales, you lose a sense of that partnership and that's what you need. So it's- Not literally, you know what no, I no, mean. No, though. I know what you mean. I know Not what you like mean. should marketing report yeah. to sales. Yeah, yeah. At a high level, I run all of go-to-market at Zapier. Revenue, so that's, marketing, yeah, That's sales, sales, success, marketing, support, and revenue operations. I'd say that you want marketing to feel as invested in the output metrics that sales has. You want them to feel as invested in that. And I think if they aren't, that could lead to unbalanced, maybe even unhealthy behaviors. I know that's hard. I've been a CMO. And you had Erica on the show, I think at one point. I worked with Erica for some time. So, at, so a Confluent. Yeah, yeah, yeah Confluent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, and it's fantastic. Fantastic. Like, yeah. And I would say like, you have to figure out that balance in that relationship because that's when it really works, both for the marketing team and the sales team. It's hard to do though. The reason you ask that question is because most likely you hear all the war stories of the, maybe even the dysfunction between sales and marketing teams. The way I see it and the reason I do say no is because I work at a place like Zapier and I did work at a place like Atlassian and marketing is critical to like the revenue engine. It's arguably the most important piece. And even at Zapier, like we're building on top of that. So we have this product and marketing motion that's efficient, bottoms up, it's product led. And now we're building a sales motion to complement that. And so they're going to work hand in hand. And so marketing is equally as important there. Yeah. I think that sometimes it's different because my mind is like companies work for the customer. That's who we all work for ultimately in my mind. And if you work backwards from the customer, 
in a lot of businesses, the tip of the spear is sales. But what's unique and interesting about your experience is that it's not sales. It's marketing. It's marketing that's the tip of the spear. In fact, I saw a posting about Zapier. A recruiter from there said, we're hiring our first salesperson. This was last year, middle of last year. That was you. That was when I, that was when, that was when I, I mean, that was about the time when I started. So we were hiring, we were hiring our first and they joined us roughly about seven months ago. So when you read that post, that was about hiring our first really head of sales, head of sales and customer success. This is a 10 year old company, incredibly successful 10 year old company. The history of Zapier has not been written yet. And part of that history is having this incredibly efficient product-led growth business model that got them to where they're at today. Now the question is, can we add components on top of that business, whether that's new products or a sales engine or both to boost the business? If you were advising you today at Zapier, similar to the advice that you would get when you were at Lassian, even though the businesses sure do look pretty familiar relative to the experience that you've had, do you ever get paranoid about the idea that maybe there's something different. Maybe there is a new way of doing things, even though the business model looks the same, where you're just naive to it because you're reapplying your playbook and missing the thing, similar to how everybody else at Atlassian in the early days, and I even say Dropbox was just reapplying their preconceived notions to your business. Yeah. I'll give you the way I always approach it with every job that I've had, every new company, and new role that I've taken. So I say it looks like Atlassian. It's not Atlassian. We're Zapier. And the business model is different, right? Like there's a self-serve component. The building blocks can kind of look and feel the same, but you have to look at every business in a unique way. The reason for that is if you look at a company like Atlassian, why did the self-serve business model work there? One, the company and the founders were in Australia. They didn't want to travel to the US, right? To have a sales conversation and close a deal. They wanted to figure out the fastest way to close a deal. There's a component of like distance that played into that. Second, key audience for them was developers. There's this very technical audience that the truth is that me and you know, developers don't want to talk to salespeople. So they tapped into this market and this audience that was very receptive to this self-serve business model. There's more that goes with that, but those are two things that I'd call out. That's different at Zapier. Yeah, we have a technical audience. Yeah, we've been able to sell, sell, serve, but we have to look at it in our own way. If you think about the flywheel that we're creating, I would say Atlassian didn't start with necessarily an ecosystem. That's where Zapier started off. Kind of like the genesis of the companies around this ecosystem of apps and partners that we have, which is incredible. That created a flywheel for us that is self-serve. So they're very reinforcing. Now we have this self-serve thing. Now we have to figure out, can that self-serve thing be reinforcing to help us go up market more of a human-led motion? So I would say I've approached each of them differently. You can't let one experience dictate the rest of them. It just doesn't work that way. I learned that the hard way, I would say, but like it doesn't work that way. You know, one of my pet peeves is, is when someone's like, at XYZ old company, we did this. I hate that. Yeah, yep. I hate that because they're using some version of a past experience to establish credibility Mm -hmm. in what is a very new and different place. Totally. And I think it's fine to do it if you're caveating it with like, hey, this might not be the answer or I've seen this across several companies. Why don't we use this as a starting point for the dialogue? Yep. But using that as the axiom of truth is nauseating to me. 
Yeah. Look, I think that's common. You've taken some experience and you're like, we did it this exact way. It should work that way here. I'll give you the story that will connect back to what you just asked, which is, I would say my first year at Dropbox, I tried to not just emulate, but I tried to do the exact same things that we did at Atlassian. And that experience for me was very eye-opening because almost everything I did did not work. And in my head, I was like, these all should work because they worked at Atlassian. They should translate very well to Dropbox and they didn't. And that's when I really changed my approach. Again, I had to learn the hard way, but I changed my approach. And I would say when I changed my approach after that first year is when we really started making incredible gains on the revenue side at Dropbox. I took some of the principles. I took some of the frameworks, but I didn't take the exact same thing. It took you a year of beating your head against the wall. Totally. Totally. How They're, miserable was that? It was miserable. You start thinking How yourself- How paranoid like, were you? Uh, incredibly paranoid. Like there must have right? been a lot of doubt. A ton of doubt. And Like, hey, was I just a product of good circumstance? Yeah, totally, totally. I'll never forget my first meeting with Dennis Woodside, which was he had just become CEO. He was asking questions about the self-serve business. And one of the things he said was, maybe self-serve is not the thing for us here at Dropbox. It doesn't seem like we're seeing the inflection that we want. Maybe we should go all enterprise human touch. And think about that from my perspective, like they brought me on board, you know, folks like Ilya Fushman, he was here at Kleiner, right? They brought me on board to kind of supercharge this self-serve bottoms up thing. And I was like, ah, oh, I've got to make this work. Fortunately, it all worked out and I gained a lot of trust from Dennis, but it took work, right? It took work. Was it also weird because you don't fit the mold of what most people at these companies look like, admittedly, like you're not the Ivy League graduate. I'm not either, just to be clear. Sometimes I'm like, I don't fit the mold here at Kleiner. You're very different. You're more rambunctious. You're definitely not afraid to speak your mind. It's raw. Your emotions are available and you charge really hard and you don't have the normal pedigree that you see at a lot of these companies, especially the Dropboxes of the world that are very data science, analytic oriented. We have a lot of computer scientists running around. Totally. Does that chip on your shoulder, wear on you? Do you like it? I feel like, do you like it? Do you feel it? Am I making it up? You could tell me if I'm making it up. Yeah, I would say I feel it. I've never used it as a chip on my shoulder necessarily. I definitely know that there are stigmas like that that exist. The thing I'd say is, for me, I love learning from people who have these incredibly different backgrounds than I do. You mentioned things like Ivy League or data science. Like I've learned how to work in those worlds that work well for the company, but also for myself. I can integrate myself into those worlds. Fun fact at Confluent, I ran data science for quite some time, for almost two years there. Mm. And so could I have run data science when I was at Dropbox? No, there was no way I could have, but I learned it. I learned how those teams functioned. I consider myself to be at the minimum, like a very data-driven person. I love to like, sit with the numbers is what I like to say. You know, I always tell people like I'll cuddle with the numbers and then I'll get back to you. But I've learned to like really integrate myself with those different teams, functions and different types of folks. And it's been able to work in my world. Am I raw? hundred percent. Do I wear my emotions on my sleeve? 190%. But it's also who I am. So I think that's why I could relate to a lot of these folks from different backgrounds, whatever that may be, whether it's a school they came from, the discipline they came from, or any other layer of diversity that you can think of. Yeah. Maybe a follow-up question to that is, did you worry or were you insecure about fitting into a box? You weren't 
the in person in any type of crowd. I'll give you a personal example. Sometimes I'm insecure that I'm not the operator because I've been out of the game for so long. I'm insecure that I'm not the investor. I don't get invited to the investor things. I'm insecure that I'm really not like even on the operating partner side here because I'm doing less of the in the weeds work than I used to. There's not really many jobs like mine in the Valley. They just don't really exist. And so I don't really get invited to any of the school dances, you know, and for a long time, that's been motivating for me because I'm like, all right, well, I don't actually want the other paths. Sometimes I feel a little left out, but I guess I'm going to have to draw something up that makes sense for me. I don't just wonder if that ever if you ever experienced that. A hundred percent. I think we all like experienced it. you're a CRO now. Yeah, totally. totally. You're, you're CRO now. Yeah. You're a CMO forever. Like you're yeah. a marketer. Yeah. The way I'd say that, I mean, the word many people use is just like imposter syndrome, right? And that imposter syndrome, what that really means for me at least is, huh, can I do that thing? Whatever that thing is. Maybe I have arm's length experience in something, or maybe I'm being left out of the party. But I don't know. It's like the reason it's motivating for me is because I want to figure out how to get into that party. And sometimes you just have to put in the work to do that. You have to learn. Let's use sales as an example. Over the years, I've intentionally put in the work. I went to Confluent specifically to learn more about sales. That's why I went there. That was one of the goals that I had was I wanted to get deeper into the true sales discipline where I had been at companies that were incredible, that wasn't what they were known for, right? Like they were known for more of this product-led growth thing, which was Dropbox and Atlassian. And I just, I needed that. And that was very intentional. Was it the most natural place for me? I can tell you a million people who told me, no, it wasn't. They were like, why are you doing that? It's a sales organization. That's not necessarily where you fit in. But I spent a ton of time putting in the work to really learn how that process worked, both operationally, but also understanding how these sales teams work. That led to the opportunity, I would say, quite frankly, that I have here today. I'm able to understand product-led growth models and human touch models. And the goal is to figure out how to marry those two. But I've tried to put in the work to learn those things. So, yeah, it motivates me. But I think that's part of the game, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. You're not a big traveler. Not a crazy traveler, I would say. What's up say. with that? My wife must have said this. What's um, up with that? So, I, I like to travel. My Come wife on, is an inc- my, my wife's an incredible traveler. I just don't like to be away from home for too long. Why? Familiarity, I think, is what it is. I think that's really what it is. If I go somewhere for three days, that's enough for me. Like, I feel like I've gotten a lot out of it and I'm just, I'm like kind of ready to go home. I'm like a routine person. My mom would say when I was younger, like you could probably be in like the military. I like my routine. I like to wake up at a certain time. I like to do things a certain way. That's just very important to me. It always has been. And losing that sense of routine is an uncomfortable place for me. I am very fortunate to have my wife who is completely opposite, who can, my wife could go to Hawaii and if somebody said, you know what, why don't you just live here? You can never go back to California. You could just live here. She'd be like, awesome, let's do it. And so having that yin and yang with my wife is incredible. But like on the 50th hour of 72 in Hawaii, are you thinking about, all right, I'm ready. Does it take away from the enjoyment of the moment? It does. It does. And by the way, I'm asking because I feel this way. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean- a hundred percent. There's this uh, book called The Power of Now. And, you know, I read a long time ago, I'll reference it every once in a while. And you have to train yourself to be in the moment. And that's something I'm always working on. Like, how do you stay in that moment? Because, you know, at that 50th hour, 
I'm thinking about the 10 other things that could happen over the next couple of weeks and how I need to prepare for those things, whether it's work related or personal, like I'm still thinking about them and it's hard to pull myself back from those. It really is. But I found ways to do it, right? Again, you need, takes work, but I found my own ways to do that. Do you think the thinking does prepare you for those next 10 things? It's funny. I was just having a conversation that was akin to this or like uh, related to this. Probably not. What was the conversation you're having? The conversation I was having, which connects to this, which was with Wade. We were talking about the number of meetings you have and like how you need just space, right? Like you need space to take- Wade's the CEO. It's Wade's the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. And where you need space to just like take a walk and sometimes things just pop in your head, right? Like creativity sometimes is born out of like freedom to some degree. And I do think that if you're thinking about things, but you're not thinking about like long-term things, you're thinking about like almost like tactical or day-to-day things. I don't know how productive that really is. Like, how is that going to help? They're still going to be there when you get back. You're still going to get them done probably in the same way. I would argue that like, if you didn't think about those things, maybe you like open up your mind to think about bigger, better things. In the space for meetings conversation, why did that conversation happen? Were you pulling? No, it was it, it actually wasn't about pulling. I'm actually pushing in this scenario. So coming back to the pushing and pulling analogy. So across our go-to-market organization, something we're doing right now is rethinking our operating rhythms. And we're thinking about that organizationally as well. And part of that is figuring out how do we just have more space and more time and less meetings. And so part of the debate we were having was really around do we have to have certain meetings? What value do we get out of certain meetings? And if it's even worth having those meetings, could we use that 30 minutes or an hour and give that back to everybody that's attending that meeting? And we're doing that across the board for our go-to-market team. It's an important thing to do. It actually is more important, I think, when you're fully remote because your days are filled with meetings. And there's kind of a multiplier effect to meetings. Like you just can end up with a calendar full of meetings, but are they all useful meetings? And so that's where the conversation was born out of. You know what I find interesting though, is that the people that feel the pain of those meetings are often people that are on your team or report to you. I think it's very difficult. It's easy for you and Wade to have the conversation of the meetings that you're in because you're scheduling the meetings. I wonder how hard it is for your team to tell you that the meeting that you or someone, some executive has scheduled is a waste of their time. That's a very hard thing to do. Yep, it is. They're the canaries in the coal mine for whose time is being wasted that you do not want to waste. But this is the trick. You have to lead by example there. Like it's on me to even call out if I think the meeting that I scheduled is unproductive. You have to make it a comfortable place to do that. You obviously have to do that responsibly and respectfully, But this is the thing like for our go-to-market team that I'm trying to encourage is to say it's okay to say that a meeting is not worth 30 minutes. Maybe we can handle it via Slack in 10 minutes or in five minutes. Maybe it just takes a good summary. The onus is on the person like creating that summary, but I think that's awesome. Then they're going to create something that's valuable. They're going to have thought about what they put on Slack and everybody else could respond to that. And it's, it, you know, that's a matter of minutes, not wasting maybe 30 minutes or an hour of a whole group's time for that. And as you, and I know you're just embarking on this process now, it sounds like with Wade, but I'm curious what qualifies in and out as good meetings. The Amazon rules, two pizzas. If two pizzas can't feed a room, too many people. Shopify, 
removed all standing meetings. You got to rebuild them from scratch. I wonder what's qualifying in and out for you. Yeah. So there's a couple things. For one, we're just looking for repetition. Are the topics very similar between meetings and can you either combine those meetings or get rid of them? So that's one. Two, we're looking at the people that are actually in the room. Let's assume like me and you were in the same meeting. Let's say we were in the same meeting five times a week. That's actually interesting, right? Like there's something that's happening with our, the communication between us that should be examined because why would we need to be in the room five times during that week? There might be a reason, but there might not. And what we're finding is there might not. I think what we're finding that we're starting to label on the go-to-market side meetings as, is this meeting meant to inform Is this meeting meant to make a decision? Those are two examples. And are those things actually happening? Is the output of the meeting a decision? Because if it's not, and that's what it was meant to be, you're having the wrong meeting. Something wrong is happening there. We haven't labeled full principles just yet, but we will. We'll find the patterns and we'll have some principles around that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's a lot of hard chargers that are listening to this podcast. Sure. People that are very achievement oriented. Mm -hmm. That was the conversation for them at the dinner table. They have big aspirations similar to you in their career. It seems like you have been able to, maybe vacation's not one of them, but some interesting parameters that you've drawn around the separation of church and state. Can you talk about some things that you do to delineate work and not? This is the advice I give people to answer this question directly. The first is, You have to really map out what is truly important to you. What are you willing to not give up in terms of your time? For me, that's things with my children. If there's events that I need to go to, whether it's a soccer game or some academic type of event, I try not to miss those. Like I try very hard not to miss those. Those are built into my schedule. So that's like figure out the things that you are just not willing to give up. Mm -hmm. Some of those are daily activities. One thing I'm not willing to give up is... I try to take my dog for a walk every single night, even if he's gone for a walk with my wife or had his exercise for the day. It's good for me and it's good for the dog. And it's an opportunity for me to just get out of the house. Just you and the dog. Just me and my dog. Just kind of blindly walk, right? And I'll try to walk a couple miles at night. I attempt to do that every night, but that's something I build into my schedule. And so I think my simple answer there is just find the things that you're not willing to give up that you need and find some repetition in them as well. Habits are incredibly important. And if you develop good habits, they're long lasting. But if you develop bad habits, guess what? They're still long lasting. Do you do dinner at home with the kids too? 100% every night. Every night. Every night. My wife's an incredible cook too. So it's, and that's uh, important it's to you. It's incredibly important. A question you ask is the conversations that you had at the table when you were younger and what you remember from those. And I think those conversations are arguably the most important as a family. Like at least for us, it is. We stick to those. I mean, I would say every night. I hope that I get to have dinner at home with the kids every night. The demands of my job require me to be out to dinner, but boy, do I believe very firmly in the idea that kids learn at the dinner table. Yeah, 100%. I appreciate you doing this. I really do. It's been an hour and a half, if you can't believe that. It's it's unbelievable. Time flies. I always end the same. The first is app you're hiring. Yes. So we are hiring in a number of categories. I think some of the key ones for us are on the marketing side, we're hiring somebody on the to run our demand gen side of the equation. So that's a key role that we're hiring for. There's a number of different roles on our engineering track. So if folks are interested in, I know this is not fully go to market, but that's an area for us that we're growing as well. Fortunately, as an organization, we're still growing. So there's a number of roles that you can find on our job site for Zapier. I'm going to give you a different 
variation of this question because I feel like you've prepped for the grit question. And I'm going to ask you, when you think of a gritty person, who comes to mind? I'll talk about somebody that's like, might be familiar here, which is Jay Simons. He was the president of Atlassian for 10 years. And I was at Atlassian a little before Jay. And I can tell you that there's moments in Atlassian's history that I directly could connect to like Jay's passion and perseverance. That's something I try to emulate. And so that's a person like right when you say it, that comes to mind that I'm like, yeah, that's like fighting through. That's somebody that's what was with a company from sub 100 million to billions, which is incredible. That's a great answer. GC, thank you. I appreciate the time, bud. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week.